Our Old Testament reading this evening is Psalm 45. Get this out of the way. Psalm 45, this will be our sermon text as well. Let's give careful attention to God's unfailing, perfect word. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter. Consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions, who follow her shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. In our New Testament reading, Hebrews chapter 1, this was our New Testament reading just a couple of weeks ago for the evening sermon, uh, but it uh, directly quotes Psalm 45. Uh, So it was hard to choose any other New Testament text here to go along with this. So Hebrews chapter 1, I'm reading the whole chapter. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. 
And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, we ask again that you yourself would speak. We don't need to hear the words of a mere man. We need to hear your word. Would you please speak and give us hearts to listen for Christ's sake. Amen. Samuel Rutherford was an old Scottish Presbyterian and an old Puritan, um, one of my favorite of all the Puritans. He was a commissioner from Scotland to go to the Westminster Assembly of Divines, convened in the 1640s down in down at, uh, down at Westminster, in order to put together, hammer out the doctrines that we have now in the Confession of Faith and the Catechisms. So he's a he's a prominent theologian from the time, uh, but but. His best-loved and probably best-known work is a collection of letters that he wrote. It's a big, thick book, about that thick, full of letters that he wrote to people in his church, um, especially from his time in prison, when he was in prison for preaching the gospel, uh, letters that he wrote to family or friends, uh, acquaintances, co-workers, colleagues in the faith. And, and in these letters... Uh, if, you, if you've read them, you know this. In these letters, you find a, a, a man who is obsessed with Christ, who is just smitten with Christ. He adores Christ. One of his letters, he writes this, There is none like him. I would not exchange one smile of his lovely face with kingdoms. In another letter, he writes this, Christ, Christ, nothing but Christ can cool our love's burning languor. Wilt thou set Christ, the well of life, to thy head and drink thy fill? Drink and spare not, drink and spare not, and be, be drunken with Christ. That's what Samuel Rutherford wrote in his letters. And I think there are places, if, you, if you've read them or if you do uh, happen to go pick up a copy and read them, I think you'll see places where he might cross a line. Um, in, in how he expresses his, his, uh, uh, his appreciation for Christ's love. But, but what I appreciate about his letters is that he's unabashed and unashamed in his love for Christ. He adores the Lord Jesus. Christ isn't this distant idea. He's not a distant figure. He's not a set of doctrines. No, he's real. Rutherford's relationship with him is real and vibrant and close. And, and, and you get the sense as you read these letters that no one is more real for Rutherford than Christ. No one is closer to him. He has no sweeter relationship, no sweeter love than Christ. And, and that is what we find here in Psalm 45. What we find here in Psalm 45 is a, is a love poem. 
It begins with a description of the most beautiful of the sons of men. And it ends with the wedding of this man. This most beautiful of the sons of men to the most beautiful of the daughters of men. This is a love poem. It's a, it's a romance. It's almost like a fairy tale. It, it describes this king and all his beauty. And then it describes this daughter who's called to forsake everything to, to, to wed this king. And then the, the, the psalm ends with their wedding. Uh, these, these words were originally written, of course, to refer to the, the king of Israel, the, the, the Davidic king. Um, they called Israel, these words called Israel to love and adore the one God had anointed to be their king. But, but they speak most of all of Christ. There are things in this psalm that cannot be said of a mere man. That can only be said of Christ. We saw that picked up in Hebrews chapter 1 just a few minutes ago. And so these words, brothers and sisters, call us to love our King, the Lord Jesus. They call us to love Him in the very strongest of terms. Not just to love Him among other loves, but to forsake all else to love Him. The psalm says, adore Christ, be smitten with Christ, be obsessed with Christ, love Christ. That is the message for us of Psalm 45. It it portrays the King, our Lord Jesus, in His beauty and calls us to forsake everything else and treasure Christ. Uh, So with that, that, by way of introduction, let's let's dive in. Our first heading is uh, the surpassing loveliness of Christ. The surpassing loveliness of Christ. do we see surpassing beauty, we also see surpassing strength. So this is no dandy. right? He's not a, he's not a wimp. Uh, we, we see that he has matchless beauty and matchless strength. Verse 3 calls this king to prepare for battle. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. So the picture switches right from the, the king uh, uh, dressed perhaps in, 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 in particularly beautiful garments to one where he's dressed for battle. His sword's buckled on his side. Um, he's, the, he's standing head and shoulders above the rest, the mightiest of all the warriors. Then verse 4 calls this king to ride out to battle 
fighting for God's kingdom for these causes of truth, humility, and righteousness. So this king fights for, for what is righteous and true. He upholds the, the righteousness of God. He fights for the humble and the lowly and the, the weak. He protects them. And verse 5 tells us that he is victorious as he does this. He rides out with his sword. His victory is unquestioned. His arrows stick in the hearts of his enemies and they fall. This king, no one can stand before him. His strength is, is matchless. But not only is he beautiful, not only is he strong, his reign surpasses all others. That's what we see going on. The king's surpassing reign in verse 6. Verse 6 tells us this king sits on God's throne. He's not sitting on an earthly throne. He's sitting on God's throne. He's sitting, as it were, on the throne of heaven that's come down on earth in in ancient Israel. That was kind of the view of the king of Israel. This is God's anointed reigning over his people and his kingdom. But but now, uh, verse 6 addresses this king so uh, in, in such exalted language it seems to actually identify this king with God himself. Verse, verse 6, we turn from addressing this king to saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. From the Old Testament perspective, right? You're, you're not, you don't have the clarity of the New Testament about how the king will be God himself. Uh, but, but you're looking forward to the Messiah God will send. And you see that this Messiah will sit on God's throne and rule on God, from God's throne. Of course, as the New Testament reveals, this, this king is going to be God and man. He's going to sit on God's throne, rule God's kingdom forever. He'll never die. He'll never give up the throne. He'll, he'll never be conquered. His rule will never be questioned. The psalm goes on, glorying in this king, and talks next about his surpassing righteousness. Right? Verses 7 and 8 tell us that this king has loved God's Law. He's loved righteousness. He's hated wickedness. This is the, uh, this is the epitome of, of kingship in the Old Testament. This is what a king was supposed to do. His job was to copy down God's law, write his own copy of it, and keep it, and lead the people in it. And you know, you see the kings of the Old Testament failing in this, and, and that's what leads the people themselves astray, as their king goes astray. The psalm here is talking about this ideal king, who keeps God's law perfectly, with perfect righteousness. We go on, we see His surpassing glory, we see His rule extending everywhere. Distant nations are bringing tribute to Him. Um, His court is described in rich terms, glorious terms. Verse 9 says, "...King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir." So, this kingdom is big. This kingdom extends out from, uh, from uh, Israel. It covers the whole earth. The daughters of other kings are in your court because that's the place to be. This is the, this is the center of the world here, this, this court of this king. And the queen here is wearing the gold of tribute from Ophir. That's a, that's a foreign nation. So the other nations are paying tribute to this king. No one can match this king for glory. All this is what the psalm proclaims to us about this king. There is no other like him. And, and so the, the picture that, that comes together as we look at that shows us that these words must be prophetic, speaking of, of more than any ordinary king in the Old Testament. Derek Kidner, one of the commentators, writes here that 
This is an example of Old Testament language bursting its banks to demand a more-than-human fulfillment. Or those wonderful words of Calvin I often quote about the Psalms. There is something here of David, but much more of Christ. The, the one who is being sung of in this psalm is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is matchless in his beauty, the ideal image of the Son of God. He is the, he's, he's the most handsome of the sons of men. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Isaiah 53 tell us that the Messiah would have no beauty, that we would desire him? Wouldn't he, wouldn't he uh, not look, you know, not stand out by his appearance? So how do, we, how do we relate these things? Don't we see that Christ in his humiliation is marred beyond recognition? Crushed, broken, uh, disfigured. But that's, you know, the, the glory of Christ is that he doesn't stay like that. He, he rises from the dead in glorious victory, and then he's crowned as, as, as the Son of God, the, the, the one who bears perfectly that image of God. And in, in that, in his being disfigured for us, crucified for us, suffering for us, and rising for us, isn't that where we see his matchless beauty? What kind of king does that for his people? Christ does. We also see in Christ matchless strength, don't we? We see him crush the serpent's head. We see him overcome the powers of darkness. In the Gospels, we read about how he goes out into the wilderness to do single combat with Satan, facing him in those times of temptation there. And he, he uh, overcomes Satan, puts him to flight. And he comes back from that and he puts demons to, to, to flight. And he, he's healing and he's, and he's, and he's uh, cleansing and he's restoring. Nothing is stronger than this king. He goes to the cross for us. He rises from the dead. Not even death is stronger than this king. And he's going to come again, right? And he's going to bring judgment on every enemy. What king is like that? Matchless strength. Matchless in his reign. We also see this. He's matchless in his reign. He surpasses all others in the scope of his kingdom. He is, as verse 6 says, he is God himself. This is our king. He's not just a man. He's God himself, joined in, uh, taken to himself man's nature. Son of God and son of David together. Seated on this throne in the, king, uh, in the kingdom of heaven, his reign will last forever. He's matchless in his righteousness. We saw this also about the king. Jesus, he's the one who perfectly keeps God's law. He's the king who perfectly leads the people in keeping God's law, ruling with perfect justice and perfectly in line with what God's word says. He's matchless in his glory. The nations are coming to him bringing their tribute to him, bowing down before him. The kingdom of God is, is going out. No glory like his glory. All the wealth of earth is his. All the glory is his. Do you see the, the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ? There is no one like him, brothers and sisters. Think of, think of all the saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Think of Noah, Moses, Joshua, the, the judges. Think of Samuel, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, the prophets, Isaiah. Think of the apostles, Peter and John and Paul. And, 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 and add to that list the saints of church history, Augustine, Anselm, Calvin, and Luther, and all the rest, John Owen. You know, and, and we put them all together. And they don't, you put them all together and they don't match up to Christ. He excels all of them. 
Think of all the great ones, the glorious ones of church history, all the emperors and kings and presidents and, and, and heroes. Put them all together and they are dwarfed by this king. They don't hold a candle to Christ. This is the king who is, uh, surpasses all in his loveliness and his glory and his beauty. He is the king who is God himself, the one who saved us for himself. That's what the first section of the psalm tells us. So in light of that, then the psalm turns in verses 10 to 12 and calls us to see the surpassing worth of Christ. That's our second point, the surpassing worth of Christ. The psalmist so far has been talking to the king, proclaiming his beauty. Now he turns and he addresses the woman who's the bride-to-be. Verse 10 says, Listen, O daughter, Consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people and your father's house. The psalmist is saying, forget, uh, forget everything you valued before and value this. Value this king. Nothing else compares with, with the worth of this king. The psalmist here is speaking to the young bride-to-be of the king of Israel and saying it's worth it to lose everything if you get to marry the king. Now, of course, the New Testament draws out for us so clearly that uh, the church is the bride of Christ. Right? Paul, over in Ephesians chapter 5, talks about, talks about this. And this psalm is commanding us as the church to forsake everything else and desire Christ and his beauty. That's what we sang earlier in those wonderful words. O royal bride, O church, royal bride, give heed and to my words attend. For Christ the King, forsake the world and every former friend. It's the same idea Jesus speaks about in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is is echoing this same idea here. He's saying, let your love for me be such that all other loves look like hatred by comparison. He's saying, I am worth losing everything to gain. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, is that how you love the Lord Jesus Christ? So that all other loves are as hatred in comparison with your love for Him. Our hearts are are drawn after so many other loves. Is there a tug of war in your heart between love for other things and other, other people instead of love for Christ? None of them can satisfy. None of them can compare with the loveliness of Christ, can they? No person, no thing, no, no pleasure of this life can compare with the joy that comes from having Christ. So don't give yourself, loved ones. Don't give yourself to any other. Give yourself to Christ. Now, I don't mean don't let any other love, uh, don't, don't, don't have any other love. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean that we should only love Christ, kind of be a hermit, go off by ourselves, read our Bible all day and not see anybody else because we're loving Christ and no one else. It's not at all what I mean. I mean, let your love for Christ be such that it outranks all other loves and controls all your other loves. Love everything that you love because of your love for Him. Verse 11 promises that if we do this, if we forsake all else and take Him, the King will desire us. He'll find us beautiful. I think the idea here is much like that idea I I mentioned in my sermon back on Easter. We saw then that Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb of Christ 
She's a nobody. She's an insignificant nobody, a woman. But she comes. She, 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 she comes, and in a sense, she has no claim on Christ, except that she needs Him. She desires Him, and she stands, she lingers waiting and weeping outside His tomb and refuses to be comforted until He appears to her. And he, Christ delights in that, and He chooses her to appear to first. And that's what we see here. She, uh, Mary Magdalene is a wonderful picture for us of forsaking all else, loving Him most. This is what our Lord loves, that we seek Him first. Let us do this, loved ones. Let us strive to make Christ the, the love of our lives. If we do, we'll find that Christ will delight in us. And, and actually, verse 12 tells the bride-to-be, if she forsakes all else, desires this king's, then the nations around her will honor her for it. They'll come seeking her favor. Right? That's, uh, that would have been true, say for, say for an Israelite woman who married one of the kings of Israel, perhaps Solomon, and, and then the nations bring tribute, and they bring tribute to her too. But this isn't just true of the, of the shadow. It's true of the reality, the fulfillment here. When the church is wed to Christ, won't the nations come bringing tribute and honor to Christ and His bride? It's that theme then that the psalm carries forward. That's our third heading. We've seen the, we've seen the surpassing loveliness of Christ. Uh, we've seen the surpassing worth of Christ. Then the psalm turns, and we look at the surpassing beauty of Christ's bride in verses 13 through 15. So we're, we're shifting our attention here from uh, uh, Christ to the bride of Christ. The scene, as, as uh, verse 13 starts, is of a, uh, of a wedding day and, and, and of that room, that busy, secretive room where the bride is getting herself ready with her, with her, uh, uh, her, her bridesmaids, her maid of honor. Uh, they're, they're getting ready. They're, they're, they're doing whatever they do, prepping their hair and, and getting dressed, etc. And they're spending hours doing it, and, and they're making themselves as beautiful as they can be. And above all, they want the bride to stand out as the most beautiful of all. Verse 13, the royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. The idea there, the picture there, is of this royal daughter on her wedding day, clothing herself, beautifying herself. And then after these hours, perhaps days of preparation, the moment comes, the, the music starts, the doors open, and all eyes are on this royal bride as, as she comes in, and the people stand to honor her, and there's the king, and his eyes are fixed on her, full of delight in her and love for her. Listen to verse 14. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. So she's there with her, her bridesmaids. And then verse 15 says, With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. A glorious, beautiful picture of the bride of this king. Is that how we think about the people of God? Think of the Old Testament people of God. The bride of of Christ there in the Old Testament. Think of their sin, their failings, their spiritual adultery. Think of the New Testament people of God. Think of, think of church history. Aren't we marked by sin and by, by petty jealousies and, and disunity? The, the picture of the church, if we're going to picture her as a woman, perhaps we picture her more as a, a woman who's dirty, tired, dressed in rags. 
God himself gives us a picture of his unfaithful bride, doesn't he, in Hosea? Not as a beautiful bride, but as a prostitute. Because of her sin, her unfaithfulness, her worship of idols instead of God, loving others instead of loving him. So how can the church be portrayed as this beautiful bride? The answer is in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Let me read it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The bride hasn't made herself pure. She hasn't made herself beautiful. Her king came and died to purify her and make her beautiful. How did he do it? How did he beautify her? We read these wonderful words in that hymn, The Church's One Foundation. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. That's why this bride is so compelling and beautiful. It's why we as the church can be called, indeed, beautiful. We've been made beautiful by the blood of Christ. Cleansed of all our sin. Clothed with the robes of His righteousness. Made holy by this glorious, holy, righteous King. And and, uh, that's what Christ is doing. It's what He's done definitively. And it's what He's doing day by day as He grows us in sanctification and in holiness. He is fitting us to be a beautiful bride for Himself. When the, when the trumpet sounds and it's the marriage supper of the Lamb, loved ones, His bride, you and I, will not be found wanting. Not because of ourselves, but because of His work. We will be clothed with beauty and glory like a bride on her wedding day. It should be a precious encouragement, loved ones. The church is the glorious bride of Christ. It should encourage us as we serve in the church, as we serve each other in the church. We serve the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve the queen as we serve the church. What higher honor could there be? This should also encourage us when we see sin in the church, whether it's our church or whether it's other churches. When we, when we see our own lack of, holy, uh, of holiness and our own sin, we should take comfort and be encouraged that, that Christ is sanctifying us. He will do it. C.S. Lewis once wrote that if we could see each other now as we will one day be transformed to be in glory, that we would fall down and worship because because we'll be so transformed to glory by the work of God in that day. I think it's true. I think it's true even on a larger scale of the church. One day, brothers and sisters, even though we see the bride of Christ now kind of in the trenches, Um, we're seeing the process of sanctification unfold. One day we will see the beauty of the bride of Christ in such glory and splendor that if we could see now what what will be then, we might be tempted to worship. Christ's redemption, see, it's, it's effective. His work of sanctification really happens, really purifies us. He will make us beautiful. So there's this focus here on the bride. But the focus doesn't stay on the bride very long. Think of those words we sang together earlier in that hymn. Based on the letters of Rutherford, the sands of time are sinking. We sang these words, The bride eyes not her garment, 
but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. As, as, that's what the psalmist is doing. He, he takes a minute to, to eye the garment, to consider the bride herself and, and, and her beauty, but he cannot keep his eyes off the King very long. He can only manage a few verses before his heart is drawn back to the beauty of the king. As, as beautiful as this bride of the king is, the king surpasses all. Isn't it interesting? Whoever went to a wedding where uh, people talked about how handsome the groom was and never mentioned the bride, how handsome his suit looked and, and didn't mention the bride's dress, right? But, but here we see that this groom, this king, he steps into the room and everyone's attention is fixed on him like a magnet. He he commands their attention. And the psalmist here can't take his eyes off the king. Actually, in these verses, as as we wrap up the psalm, we see that the whole world, as it were, can't take its eyes off this king. And that's our final point, the surpassing praise of Christ. Verses 16 to 17. Verse 16 tells us that uh, this king is going to have many sons, that they'll reign throughout the earth, so for, if we, if we kind of go back to the Old Testament perspective, as they would have been hearing this and singing this, they'd be rejoicing that God is fulfilling his promise to David to make sure that a, a descendant of David stays on the throne and, and stays on this throne forever, that the dynasty is not in danger, right? This isn't Henry VIII trying and trying and trying for an heir. This is someone whom God has blessed, given many sons. And the psalm says that these sons will be princes and other throughout the earth. So they're going to be set up as princes and rulers in other nations. Right? So we get this picture of the expanding kingdom. I mean, we don't see that happen in Israel's history. We don't, we don't see uh, a king of Israel or Judah have these many sons, and these sons become princes in these other nations. How is this, how is this fulfilled? Well, we see this show up in other places in Scripture, too. We, we see that God will, as it, he's going to place his people on thrones. Too. Not just his anointed, not just the Christ, but his people to rule. His saints are going to rule on thrones. We see this, for example, in Daniel 7. There in Daniel 7, uh, Daniel has this glorious vision of the Son of Man who's going to reign on a heavenly throne. And of course, that's referring to Jesus. He loves that title for himself, the Son of Man. He's the one who will reign on the throne. But Daniel 7 also refers to the saints who will reign on the throne. That's referring then to those who are in Christ and who are going to rule with Christ. Let me read Daniel 7, verse 27 to you. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. The people are given the kingdom. They're going to be ruling in the kingdom. Romans 8.30, we're told that God is going to glorify all those whom he's predestined, called, and justified. In Hebrews 2.10, we read that God is going to bring many sons to glory through Christ. God is establishing his rule through Christ, raising up spiritual sons, you and me, loved ones, to reign with Christ over all things. It's astounding, isn't it, that God would do that, that, he, that he'd do that through us. What will be the result? What's going to be the result of all this? Verse 17, the king's name will be known and praised by everyone everywhere. We're told that this king's name will be remembered in all generations. 
So that's how long this king's glory will last forever. It will, it will never end. It will never run out, never fade. And then we're told that all the nations will praise this king. So not only does this king, his glory lasts, but it, it spreads. Right? It goes on and on in time, and it goes out and out in space. His, his glory will cover the whole earth. That All the nations will bring praise to him. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow down and worship him. There's no time then, and there's no space then, where this king will not be worshipped and loved and adored. And only Christ is the king of whom that is true. His name alone is going to be praised and never forgotten forever and ever. Think of the length of eternity. Right? It's impossible to, but we sing that line. When we've been there 10,000 years, we, we still have no less days to sing his praise. That's what eternity is going to be. A praise, a, a glorying in Christ the King. That's going to be the fulfillment of this psalm. His praise will last forever and never, be, uh, never, never run out. The glorious good news, brothers and sisters, is that this Christ, this excellent, lovely Christ, is your husband. He is the bride of this church, the church. He, he is the, the king who loves us and gave himself for us. Is there a higher privilege? The angels don't get to be the bride of Christ. Only the people of God. We get the king of heaven for our, for our husband. This glorious king who's, who's wooed us to himself, won us to himself, saved us, betrothed us. And loved ones, take, uh, take, take joy and, and rejoice in this, that the wedding day with this king is coming. We've been betrothed. We're in the procession to heaven. The music is being played, as it were. We're almost there. The doors will open and our groom will be waiting for us. And he'll delight in the beauty that he's worked in us by his grace. So loved ones, don't let your heart wander. Don't give your heart to any other. Don't, don't treasure anything else the way you should only treasure Christ. Give your heart to Him. Forsake all else and, and treasure Him. To paraphrase Rutherford as we close, there is none like Him. Don't exchange one smile of His lovely face for kingdoms. Let's pray.